And you guys can grab a seat. Well, welcome to The Grove. My name is Caleb Brazier. I am uh, one of the pastors here at The Grove. So glad you guys are here with us this morning. Um, we are in the middle of our study through the book of 2 Corinthians. So one of the things that marks us as a church is we're expository preachers. What that means is the majority of time, we're just walking chapter by chapter, verse by verse through books of the Bible. So we've been walking through 2 Corinthians for the last few months. We're here in 2 Corinthians 6 this morning. So we'll be in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 3 through 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 3 through 10. If you grab one of the Bibles next to you, it's on page 1035. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that with you. That's our gift to you. We'll be in uh, chapter 6, verses 3 through 10. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the chapter numbers are the larger numbers, and the verse numbers are the smaller ones. Chapter 6, verses 3 through 10. So where we've been in 2 Corinthians, before we dive in and read our passage this morning, Paul is writing this letter to a church, a local church in Corinth. Corinth was a city, um, and so the people in Corinth were known as Corinthians. So this is the second letter that we have from Paul to this church, hence why it's known as 2 Corinthians. So in it, Paul has had this long and complicated relationship with this church. There's been ups, there's been downs, there's been highs, there's been lows. Um, Through it all, though, it's now reached a turning point where the church is finally beginning to respond to Paul's ministry to the gospel. They're finally starting to follow and understand the implications of what it means to follow Jesus. And so there's a lot of good in this, but one of the main things that Paul is still hoping to correct in this letter is the view that this church has on what ministry looks like. You see, Corinth was a new town in uh, this time, in the Roman Empire. It had grown quickly. It was filled with, uh, with freed slaves who had gotten wealthy quickly. It didn't come from old money. And so in it then, all of a sudden, there was all this wealth pouring into this city because it, it had ports on both sides of the city. So lots of trade came through, lots of commerce. And so all of a sudden, it became this kind of booming town out of nowhere, similar, honestly, to Las Vegas today, to kind of give us some grasp of what the city was like. And so with that, much like Las Vegas then, with that sudden growth and all this money came also all sorts of issues with it. What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. I think that's somewhere in 2 Corinthians. We'll find it later. It has all of these issues with it. And Paul is having to write them and tell them not only about kind of these uh, sexual immorality issues, but he's also having to tell them, hey, you need to understand the kingdom of God isn't like the kingdom of this world. They had a hard time understanding that. They looked around at their city, and they saw these buildings popping up, these huge monuments, these impressive structures, these powerful people that were coming to the city through Rome, and they began to say, hey, the church needs to be like that. The church needs to be filled with people who are impressive and have these incredible resumes, and the church needs to grow and be as impressive as our city is. And there were these people that Paul references throughout the letter that he kind of nicknamed super apostles, kind of tongue-in-cheek, that were trying to undercut Paul's ministry. And they came in with these long resumes. They were incredible orators. They were very gifted uh, in giving speeches. And in the first century, that was one of the main forms of entertainment, right? They didn't have Netflix. They didn't have movie theaters. They didn't have Blockbuster, neither are we, but hopefully in the new heavens and new earth, we'll have that again. But there were no forms of entertainment like that. So what a lot of people did is they went to hear gifted speakers. And here come these ministers of the gospel, these super apostles that were incredibly gifted. 
And they had a lot of money. They would even charge people to hear them. At the church in Corinth, they were going, they must be legit because we're having to pay to hear them. Their lives seem like they're together. They're impressive. They're go, like their ministries are going. They're going from city to city. This, this is the Christian faith that I want to follow because it's like the, the culture that we're in. And Paul steps in, and honestly, this entire letter in 2 Corinthians is trying to correct that notion that they've missed what God's kingdom actually looks like. And the whole message of 2 Corinthians is really just this. Paul's telling them, you want to understand true power in the kingdom of God? It comes through your weakness, not through your strength. See, when we're strong, we steal glory from God. But Paul says, when you press into your weaknesses, into your inabilities, you have no hope but then to lean on the power of God, and he gets all the glory, and you don't get any of it. And those are the people that God's looking for. He's looking to display his power through weakness. And he's trying to correct this misnomer of what the kingdom looks like. And so he's just laid out, starting in 2 Corinthians 2, all the way up to where we are currently. He's kind of had this little parenthetical section on describing what this kingdom ministry looks like. What is this new covenant? What is this gospel? How are we to carry it? How are we to live in this life? And you just got incredible section after incredible section through these last few chapters. And he's now getting ready to round out this thought and kind of summarize it and what the nature then of ministry is to look like in his life and in any of the disciples of Jesus's life. And in it, again, he's trying to get underneath this thought of saying, it's not going to look impressive. It's going to look weak. It's going to look not like this beautiful porcelain pot, but like clay jars. That's what God is looking to put his treasure in, so that the power may come from him and not from you. And these super apostles were trying to undercut Paul, and some of the things that they would say is they would go, hey, Paul isn't a very good speaker. Paul didn't charge money to hear him speak. And also, look at all the suffering in his life. How, how could God be with him if his life is as miserable as that? But us pay to come here and speak, listen to how gifted we are, and look how great our lives are. God is clearly blessing us. We are living the hashtag blessed life and not Paul over there. And so Paul is going, okay, let me, let me just correct this for you and let me tell you what a truly blessed life looks like. Let me show you what true gospel ministry looks like. Let me show you what the flavor and the nature and character of a Christian life should look like. And it's not what we would initially think. And so that's what gets us now to our chapter and text here this morning. So let's read through uh, verses 3 through 10, and then we'll jump in. So Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, and he says this, We are not giving anyone an occasion for offense, so that the ministry will not be blamed. Instead, as God's ministers, we commend ourselves in everything by great endurance, by afflictions, by hardships, by difficulties by beatings, by imprisonments, by riots, by labors, by sleepless nights, by times of hunger, by purity, by knowledge, by patience, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, through weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, through glory and dishonor, through slander and good report, regarded as deceivers, yet true, as unknown, yet recognized, as dying, yet see, we live, as being disciplined, yet not killed, 
as grieving, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet enriching many, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. So Paul, again, kind of waxes poetic here as he's kind of rounding out and describes the nature of his ministry. And so beautiful, as you just read through it, you can feel kind of the poetry that's there and the beauty even as he writes. And if we're not careful, we can just gloss over the way it's written and miss what he's actually saying. And as he's writing, notice the intention of what he's trying to do. Look at verses three and four. He's saying, we're not giving anyone an occasion for offense so that the ministry will not be blamed. But instead, as God's ministers, we commend ourselves in everything. So he's, at the very beginning, he's stating, here's my purpose. I don't want anybody to look at my life and discredit the message. We want to make sure that we're not giving anyone an occasion for offense. We want to remove all the blame that might exist, all the things that might keep people from believing that we are actually preaching this gospel. And instead, we want to actually commend ourselves. We want to be able to live a life in such a way that we can hold it out and people will be attracted to the message and not repulsed by it. And then he goes into what that looks like. So Paul, and we, and we do the same thing here. We don't want people to be offended or turned away or repelled. Instead, we want our ministry to be commended, to be magnetic, to be attractive to the world. Paul here is sensitive to those outside the church, and he wants his ministry to be attractional. And so it's a bit countercultural as we see, Paul's idea of what it means to be seeker-sensitive or attractive is very different from what a lot of churches view today. And that kind of philosophy of being an attractional church or a seeker-sensitive church is trying to take into mind the needs of those outside or the preferences of those outside the church and try to remove all those to bring them into the church to be able to hear the gospel. But a lot of it is wrapped up in what the church does, how relevant the church might be, how entertaining the church might be, and when Paul gets into wanting an attractional ministry, notice he doesn't really get into anything at all like that. It's not about lights or production value or entertainment or a cool and engaging communicator. The attractive ingredient in Paul's ministry wasn't in how he became popular through success, but how he endured through difficulty. When Paul's laying out the commendation for his ministry and trying to remove the barriers of people believing, he says, look at my life and look at the difficulty and there's been endurance in the midst of it. There has been power of work in me and I have been living this paradoxical Christian life. And so Paul is trying to put forward this commendation, this argument that his ministry is attractive. He wants his ministry to be made attractive. And the three ways that he lists that out, he says his ministry is made attractive three ways, one by perseverance, two by power, and three by paradox by perseverance, by power, and by paradox. And so first, he lays out his ministry being attractive by perseverance. We see this in the second half of verse four. So he's just said, we wanna commend ourselves in everything. We wanna lay out this message to, to commend, to attract, to, to draw people in. And how do we do that? By great endurance. So Paul kind of gives this overarching word here of having great endurance, great perseverance, walking through, walking through what? Well, he lists it out. He lists three groups of three here. He says, first, by afflictions, by hardships, by difficulties. So endurance in the midst of those three things, just kind of general difficulties in Paul's life, just the general weight and brokenness of this world by 
afflictions, hardships, difficulties. Second group of three, he then gets more specific in ways for him and his life, how that's looked by beatings, by imprisonments, and by riots. Paul's like, I have greatly endured in the midst of being beaten and left for dead, in the midst of being thrown into prison, in the midst of having endured riots in the city and being overthrown and the government being on my tail, in the midst of all of that, there's been great endurance. And the third group of three he gives are self-inflicted difficulties by labors, by sleepless nights, and by times of hunger. And so what he's talking about here is how he would work during the day as a tent maker and then preach the gospel at night, often losing sleep, often missing meals, and working night and day to be able to take this gospel to the ends of the earth. He said in the midst of all of that, all of the difficulties, there was great endurance that was there. And so one of the ways then he's trying to say that removes the barrier for those who are on the outside is it removes anyone looking at his life and going, Paul's just in this for the money. Because Paul's like, hey, look, look, look at my life. I'm not doing any of this for the money. I don't even have nice clothes to wear. I have no letters of recommendation. I don't have a savings account. I am here to preach the gospel. And my life has been hard. And this, honestly, as Paul lays out here at first by perseverance, he's laying out what is the opposite of what's known today as the prosperity gospel. And the prosperity gospel is an is a off-strand of Christianity. It's not a version of Christianity. It's, it is uh, antithetical to what the gospel teaches. But it's being sold on TV stations and books around the world. And the message is mainly pretty much this, that if you believe in God, he will make you happy, healthy, and wealthy. That's what God wants for you. God doesn't want you to be sick. Doesn't, God doesn't want you to be poor. God doesn't want you to, and if, and if you just believe enough, then your sickness will be gone. Your bank account will be full. And all the things you've wanted in this life will be given to you. And if you don't have those things, it isn't because God doesn't want to give them, it's because you don't believe enough. Now, there's a number of ways in which this is damaging and unhelpful. One of the ways in which that promise isn't given anywhere in Scripture And when we hold on to that, when you walk through difficulty and pain in this life, and God may choose not to heal, that what that message teaches is that the reason why is because you didn't have enough faith. And you want to talk about the guilt and the burden that people carry in their lives, going, I wasn't healed because I didn't believe enough. My family member wasn't healed because I didn't believe enough. Friends, that's not at all what the Bible teaches. And at the end of the day, what that message holds out, what's at the end of that, the reason why people might come to Christianity is to go, oh, wait, Jesus wants to give me a lot of money? Okay, I'll follow that, Jesus. And what's underneath that is not the glory of a God, it's ourselves. And Paul's going, look at my life. My life was filled with difficulties, and I continue to endure. So there is no one who can come and say that I'm just in this for the money. And so Paul's trying to remove those barriers, saying that his ministry is actually attractive to those in the world because it's, it's marked by perseverance and great endurance. But secondly, not only that, but also his ministry is made attractive by power. We see this in verses 6 through 7. So Paul now shifts from these three groups of difficulties and lays out two groups of four in regards to his character and what his life looks like. Verse 6, he says, that is marked by purity, by knowledge, by patience, by kindness. The second group of four, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, and by the power of God. Now, notice here, I, I said that his ministry is made attractive by power, not just character. Because if we're not careful, we may then view lists like this and go, oh, well, then what I need to go do is I need to then outwardly go and live my life a certain way. 
We, we can miss the internal change that needs to happen in our life. We can go and make a list of kind of things that we need to kind of externally shift and make sure that as long as people are around, they see us act a certain way, and that's what Christianity is about. And friends, that is the opposite of Christianity. That's what the Pharisees did. They made a list of external conformity and said, here you go, this is what a relationship with God is. Follow these things. And Paul here does have a list of things, purity, knowledge, patience, kindness. But he also says the only way in which I can be patient in the midst of these kind of difficulties is by the power of God, which is given to him through the Holy Spirit. Paul's going, the only hope I have to be patient in this world is by the Holy Spirit dwelling in me, producing a difference inside of me that then expresses itself in patience. The Holy Spirit inside of me, shaping my heart, making me, seeing the kindness of God toward me, and then me being able to then show God's kindness to others. Kindness and patience aren't easy things to do. Do you know the reason why you would have to be patient in your life? Because there's somebody that's making you impatient in your life or a situation that's making you impatient. We, we need to be careful when we pray that God would grow the fruit of the Spirit in our life or pray that God would make us patient. Because you know how he's going to answer that prayer? He's going to bring things in your life that will make you impatient and make you lean on his Spirit. Okay, I'm ready for this to kind of hurry up, God. This isn't, this, isn't what I'm, this isn't what I want. I'm ready to kind of get past this and move on. I'm ready to see results, right? I'm type A. I've got my list. Here's my deadline. The deadline's here. God, it's time for change to happen. And he's going, whoa, wait, wait, you ask for patience, not results. And the way in which he works that in us is through difficulties like this. Patience and by kindness. It's, God doesn't call us just to be kind that it's easy to be kind to. To just be kind to people that we enjoy being around or that it's easy to be kind to. God calls us to be kind to our enemies. God calls us to be kind to people that maybe socially are different than us. If within the church, we are, we are only a group of people that would all hang out with each other outside of this, how compelling is that to the outside world? Walk in and go, oh yeah, it makes sense why all these people are hanging out. They all like the same things. They all look the same, same culture, same preferences. Oh, yeah, 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 I get that. But when someone walks into a church, and there's different generations, there's different ethnicities, there's different cultures, and then together, we come together, and all of a sudden, we begin to see friendships happening across those lines. We begin to see people in small groups and in discipling relationships crossing those boundaries and going, hold on, it doesn't make sense that these people should be together, and yet the thing that brings us together is greater than anything that separates us, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when someone from the outside world, a world that's marked by division and hatred for the other side, walks in and sees black people, white people, Hispanic people, all sorts of different ethnicities that should hate one another, Democrats and Republicans in a year like this coming together and going, the thing that marks us and that separates us is insignificantly smaller to the thing that brings us together. When someone walks in and sees a community like that, I'll give you a word of what that community looks like. It looks attractive. It looks compelling. And people begin to wonder, what is the thing that's bringing these things together? Everything that I watch says they should hate one another, and yet they don't. And that's when we get to talk then about the Savior that we worship together.
And there's an attractive nature to that. But that only happens through the power of God, through his Holy Spirit in us. As we show kindness and patience to one another. We show sincere love. I love that phrase he gives. That word sincere, it's like unhypocritical love is what he's saying. It's love that's genuine. Love that looks at the other and doesn't expect anything from them. Love that genuinely loves like God has loved them. A sincere and unhypocritical love. And Paul just lays this all out and said, this is what then my ministry looks like and how it is made attractive by the power of God through his Holy Spirit to produce this character within me. And he continues then in verse, uh, at the end of verse 7, that's done through the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. That as this righteousness is produced, it arms us both for offense and defense. Or we have weapons both in the right hand and the left to go then into this world. And his ministry is made attractive, and so is ours as we follow through this. But then he gets to verse 8 through verse 10. And so he's shown that his ministry is attractive by perseverance and by power, but now in verses 8 through 10, he shows how it's made attractive by paradox. And he gets into really what the nature of the kingdom of God is like. It's an upside-down kingdom. It didn't make sense to the world in the first century. It doesn't make sense to the world today. And unfortunately, often, even within our church uh, here today, it doesn't make sense to us that the kingdom of God is paradoxical. But what's he mean? He goes through and describes in the nature of this ministry that through glory and dishonor, through slander and good report, regarded as deceivers yet true, as unknown yet recognized, as dying yet live, as being disciplined yet not killed, as grieving yet always rejoicing, as poor yet enriching many, as having nothing yet possessing everything. Paul's going through and going, the nature of Christian life, the nature of this kingdom is going to be upside down. If we just view our lives, if we just view our Christian lives by what we can see, we'll miss the full picture. It's just what he said in the chapter before. He said, you want to know how to live the Christian life? We walk by faith, not by sight. By what we believe to be true, not just what we can see. And so he begins to flesh out what that looks like. He's saying, you walk through this life, you're going to have glory and you're going to have dishonor. There are going to be people that praise you and people that bring you down. You will be slandered and have good reports. There are going to be people who are going to be talking behind your back, trying to bring you down, and there are going to be people who are going to talk about how great you are. He said, but it's going to have both. Get ready. It happened for Jesus. It happened for me. It's going to happen in your lives as well, regarded as deceivers, yet true. Paul said that his, in his ministry, there were times in which people came and said, Paul, you're just trying to deceive us. You're just trying to get something from us or work kind of your way up this uh, uh, power kind of ladder to have more authority and influence. And Paul's going, listen, I, I, can't, I can't control what other people think about me. But I know in my conscience, if I lived this life, I've lived as true as I could and lived before God trying to please him and not trying to please man. He said, there will be times we will be regarded as a deceiver and yet you will be true. And so I don't know about you, but I find tremendous comfort in that. I have a tendency towards people-pleasing, and so the, the praise and the, the opinion of man can be louder in my ears than God's can at times. I have to constantly fight that. And in this, I see Paul going, listen, 
Caleb, understand as you live this life, it doesn't matter what you do. There are going to be people that will come and go, hey, he's trying to deceive us. He's trying to do something. He's got an ulterior motive. And the thing that I have to consistently come back to is coming before the throne and going, God, here is my heart. You know my motive. Is it true? Is it honorable? Is there good motive and intention here? And if so, I can't control what other people think and or say, but continue on to walk faithfully the best that I can, imperfectly, but the best that I can. And so friends, in your life, know that you can't control what people think or say about you. And maybe you've gone through this life and maybe you've even had consequences in your life as a result of dishonor or slander or threats thrown against you. Maybe you've lost your job. Maybe you've lost kind of relational capital or even a relationship as a whole because people looked and said, this is what this person's really doing. And you're going, no, it's not. I'm, I'm not perfect, but I know that what you're saying and what you believe isn't true of me. And maybe you've lost something because of that. Friends, take heart because Paul goes, listen, that's just a part of living this Christian life in a broken world. It happened to Jesus. It's gonna happen to those who follow him. And so I find encouragement and heart in that as he says that you will be regarded as deceivers and yet true. Continues in verse nine, he says, in these paradoxes, you'll be regarded as unknown and yet recognized. Paul's going, listen, we're a small little kind of religious group here that's following a crucified and resurrected savior in the midst of the greatest global power known to man up until that point, the Roman Empire. Caesar didn't care about what was happening in these houses. He was unknown and unnoticed and unrecognized. And Paul goes, listen, that doesn't matter because I am known by the creator of the world. And so I can walk through this entire life unknown unrecognized, unpraised, as long as I walk forward by faith and not by sight, because my God knows me and my God sees me. Again, friends, as you walk in your life, understand that you may feel insignificant. You may feel like you're unnoticed, like you're doing the best that you can. You're trying to follow God and live for him in your jobs, in your families, and you just go, I just feel so unknown Friends, you are not unknown in the kingdom of God. As you walk forward, every step you walk forward in faith, your creator sees it. And one day your creator will reward you for it. It is not insignificant and it is not unknown. Whether or not your boss didn't see how you were being honest in a report, but others were being dishonest and it moved them forward and you're going, how in the world are they moving up by lying and I'm still here in the same position because I'm being honest? I feel so unknown. Friends, you are not unknown. God sees it. Goodness, again, uh, we, we come back and say this often in, in this season of life, but it's just so true and how often it gets overlooked. If you are a mother you are one of the most unknown and unrecognized people in the world. And there is probably no greater job given to anyone here in this world than what you do. And I don't overstate that. And it can feel like you're at home and maybe you're changing diapers or you're running around trying to keep crayons from being drawn all the, on the wall or whatever it might be. And you're going, this feels so unknown right now. I feel unrecognized and unappreciated. And let me just say, you are not unknown in the eyes of your God. Every act of faith, every changed diaper, every life that you are pouring yours out into another, God sees it and it is known by him. 
And so we live as unknown, but yet recognized. He continues on, he says that we live as dying and yet we see that we actually live. So Paul's saying we are beaten, some of our friends die, Paul eventually himself dies. He's saying, listen, we live, both I'm here right now, but also we will live for eternity. There is no death that can take the life from us that Jesus has given us. And so we are dying, but yet see, we live. We are disciplined, yet not killed, that we walk forward and at times God is disciplining us or, or chastising us, but yet we are not killed. He continues to hold on to us. And then in verse 10, he gets to one of my favorite phrases in the New Testament as he says that we are grieving, yet always rejoicing. Some translations say we are sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. And here's why I love this is because notice what it doesn't say. What it doesn't say is that through the gospel of Jesus Christ, you won't have any sorrow. As you walk through this life, there'll be difficulties, but, but don't worry, you, you won't be sad. You shouldn't be sad. You shouldn't have sorrow. You should have joy instead, that God's gospel removes any pain from this life, and we get to walk through completely unscathed, and no matter what circumstance we walk through, we can have a smile on our face because Jesus rose from the dead. That's not what it says. It says that we are sorrowful, that as we walk through this life, we will be filled with sorrow as we live in a broken and a damaged world. That there will be pain in our lives and at times it will feel insurmountable. Now, the promise we have, one day that pain will end, but the other promise we have is that as we live in this world, we will feel it. The effects of sin, whether directly or just indirectly as a result of the fall, we feel the suffering and the withering away of this world. But what the promise of Christianity is, is not that we just slap on a smile and it's all going to be fine, but it's that through our tears, there is still somehow joy in the midst of it. That the two intermingle, that the Christian life is far more complex than just a smile, that there is sorrow and yet the ability to always rejoice. There is trouble and there is peace. There is difficulty and there is hope together that we would be sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. And so you may go, well, Caleb, that, that sounds nice, but listen, Paul, wasn't Paul Mr. Untouchable? Right? Wasn't there nothing that could harm him? He just walked through life. There was nothing that could faze him. Right? We talked about it before. He said uh, people came to try to shut him up from preaching the gospel. They said, fine, you know what? We're going to kill you. He said, that's great. To die is gain. So, okay, well, we're going to throw you in prison. He's like, that's fine. Put me in prison. God will break me out, and then I'll convert all the jailers. I'm like, okay, fine. We'll let you live. He's like, great. To live is Christ. What you got next? Nothing could touch Paul. Right? We see this in Philippians as he lays this out. You go, well, you see, for Paul, he wasn't sorrowful. He just was always rejoicing. So should that be our mentality? That Paul somehow looked at death and said, to die is gain. How many of us can say that? I know that I can't. And is that how we're supposed to view death in all of our life? To die is gain? It feels so upside down. Paul, is that really what you're saying? Well, listen, we just haven't read the whole chapter in Philippians. Because yes, Philippians 1.21, Paul does say, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. But in the very next chapter, listen to what he says in Philippians 2, verse 27. He says, indeed, Epaphroditus, who was a co-worker, uh, co he was uh, someone who shared the gospel with him. He was a friend of Paul's. 
Paul said, indeed, Epaphroditus, who was so sick that he nearly died. However, God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but also on me. How did God have mercy on Paul by healing Epaphroditus? Paul said, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. You see, here was Paul's perspective of death. Paul said, for me, when I die in that moment, to die is gain. I will be in the presence of Jesus. I'll be present with the Lord, and my joy will be complete. But when those around him began to fall asleep, when those around him would die, he was heaped with sorrow upon sorrow, like he was drowning, not because he didn't know the reality of heaven. Friend, I would go so far as to say there is no human being apart from Jesus Christ who understood the beauty and the reality of heaven than Paul did. He, he could say in his own life to die is game, but yet in the midst of that theological truth, whenever he walked around those next to him, his friends, those close to him would die, he would drown in sorrow. And so he would hold forward the Christian life is one in which we are sorrowful, and yet we are always rejoicing. Because in the midst of that sorrow, there is still joy that's offered to us. In the midst of that pain, there is still promise. In the midst of that suffering, there is still hope. The two mixed together. It says again in 1 Thessalonians that we grieve. When our friends fall asleep, we grieve. When our friends die, we grieve. But we don't grieve like those without hope. There's a different way in which we grieve. We cry. We hurt. We feel sorrow upon sorrow. But yet we're able to still walk forward by faith and not by sight, knowing that this is not how the story ends. And we feel like God feels, and we walk forward sorrowful, grieving, yet always rejoicing. He continues and says, not only that, but we also act as poor, yet enriching many. Saying, you know, we don't have money, but yet we can give people everything. Well, what's he talking about? He's not talking about money. He's talking about the riches of the kingdom of God. He's talking about grace and mercy, joy, hope. He's talking about reconciliation. He's talking about salvation. He's saying, we have the message that will reconcile people back to their creator. And so even though we don't have money, we are rich in the inheritance of God. And we get to go and we get to give it to others. He says, we may have nothing as having nothing, yet we possess everything. So Paul has this paradoxical view of the Christian life. And notice, again, remember, how, why is he laying all this out? He's laying all of it out to commend the message and himself and not to create a barrier or an offense. He's trying to remove those. He's trying to lay out and say, this is the way in which this ministry is attractive. And so he's saying that as you walk through endurance in the midst of difficulties, as you walk through character motivated by the power of God, and you live a life in the upside-down kingdom of God, that will draw people who are looking for something. Because here's the, as we talk about what the attractional church truly is, again, there's been a lot of ink spilled over the last couple decades on what an attractional church is. There's a book called The Attractional Church written by a guy named Billy Hornsby, who was the founder of the Associated Related Churches. They'll kind of put forward this idea of an attractional church, and he sums it up like this in his book, The Attractional Church. He said, the attractional church tends to draw people to its Sunday services because of its attractive style and relevant approach to communicating the gospel. In most cases, worship is contemporary, but it doesn't have to be. Services are fun and happy, and the people are friendly. And the heart behind it is this, and I can't, I can't 
celebrate the heart enough. It's we want to do everything we can to get people into the doors so they can hear the gospel. So whether we're trying to use uh, some kind of tactic or, or something else to be able to get people in the doors, we want them to hear the gospel. It's a great motive. And when they get there, they say, we want to make sure that it's a, an attractive style. It's a relevant approach. We want to make sure worship is contemporary, fun, and happy, and that people are friendly. So when people hear the gospel, that they then have all those barriers removed. That's the, the heart behind the attractional church model. But do you hear how different that is than what Paul just laid out? Paul didn't list anything about relevance or the way in which a service should feel. Paul is saying that what the world needs is something different than what the world can already get. Because the world doesn't need a Christian version of what it can already have. It needs hope in the midst of brokenness. It needs joy in the midst of sorrow. It needs an answer to what is wrong with this world. And the only answer we have to be able to give is Jesus. And at the very end, Paul says, you want to know the summary of my ministry, what it looks like, what makes it attractive, is that while we have nothing, we possess everything. That we walk forward and know that in this kingdom, Christ has given us everything. It is ours. We are co-heirs with him. And so as we walk forward, we may be losing everything in our life. We may be walking through difficulty and sorrow and tragedy. But when, when a Christian begins to lose everything in their life and begins to continue to walk forward and go, I know that it looks like my world is falling apart around me and I feel the sorrow welling over my head and yet that person still goes, but Jesus is enough. Friends, that message draws the world to it because the world goes, I can't get that anywhere else. Give me that. I can get entertainment and concerts and good speakers, but I can't get that. And so we have no message but Jesus and him crucified. That is of first importance for us. Everything we want to do is lifting him up because he gives what the world cannot and so our ministry, our lives may be marked with that reality that we may say we have nothing and yet we possess everything because of what Christ has given us. And through tears, we still hold joy. Joy is not just happiness. They are not the same. Joy is far deeper than that. Joy is not going, we should just laugh and have a good time. Joy is a sense of hope and this undercurrent that brings us forward going that there is nothing in this world that can alter the relationship that I have with my Savior. Joy and hope and peace cannot be removed from our lips. Happiness can be, so can sadness, but joy and hope and peace, friends, there is nothing that this world can do to take that from you. Jesus has given it to you, and there's nothing that can take it from you. And so we walk forward in this paradoxical nature, in this upside-down kingdom, and as we live that way, the world will begin to notice as living different than. And we go, we may have nothing, and yet we possess everything. Well, what does Paul mean? So it sounds great, we possess everything, but Paul, what does everything mean? I can't get into all of it, but what, what I would say is just open up the scriptures, start looking for every promise that's there, and hold on to it. 
Friends, open up this book. You want to know how much you possess? Read this. And as we continue to neglect this in our lives, we will continue to not know what it is we possess. But as we go through, circle, underline, highlight, memorize every single promise of what God has promised to give us and hold on to it and go, there's nothing, there's nothing that this world can do to take this from me. So whenever you walk through a moment of suffering or trial or tragedy in your life, you pull back out what you have rooted in your heart that says, no, we don't give up because even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day because our momentary and light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable weight of glory. And I know that this, what God has told me, is more true than what this world is telling me. We hold on where Jesus says that I have come that you might have joy and joy to the fullest. We hold on to that and go, no matter what this world throws my way, I know that my joy is found in him and in him alone. And we hold on to it. And we go through and we grab and we grasp and we hold and we hide every promise of what we possess deep into our hearts. So that as that comes and as our lives begin to fall around us, because friends, they will, we live in a broken world. We live in a damaged world. We are clay pots and we will be pressed in on every side, but you will not be struck down. You will not be abandoned and you will not be destroyed. And in the midst of that, as you walk through and we carry this treasure in this clay pot, this broken, fractured, imperfect clay pot, we walk through knowing and holding on to God's promises so that the treasure of the gospel that for whatever reason God saw fit to hide within us shines brightly through the cracks of our sorrow into a world that's watching. And we say, don't come to Jesus because of how great we are or how impressive we are or how persuasive we might be. Come to Jesus because he can give you what you've been looking for and that nothing in this world can. That's the message of what Paul is trying to get here, this church to see that we possess nothing and yet we have everything. And so grasp onto it, hold on to it. What it is we possess what I'll do is I just want to go through briefly through the gospel of John and highlight just a handful of promises. I'm not going to read the whole book, just a handful of promises. What has God said that you possess? What do we have to hold on to? Let me just tell you from one book some of the promises and possessions that you have. John 1.12, to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. John 3, 16, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. John 4, 14, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. John 6, 25, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 10, 10 and 11, the thief comes only to steal, to kill and destroy, but I came that they may have life and to have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. John eleven twenty five. 25, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. John 14, three, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself. That where I am, you will be also. John 14, 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. 
John 15, 11, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. John 16, 22, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. John 16, 33, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. But we hold on to them. We press them into our hearts. And we believe that even though our lives may fade away and we have nothing, that we still possess everything. That in him, you have a new family and a heavenly father. That in him, you have life eternal, desire satisfied, light and darkness, safety from destruction, abundant life. Friends, in him, you have a God who's laid down his life for you. You have a God who won't leave you alone in the brokenness of this world, a God who's now preparing a place for you and will come to bring you home, a God who's fighting for your joy, a God that knows your sorrows but promises that it will one day end, a God who's overcome this world in the midst of our tribulation. He offers us his unshakable peace. Friends, though we may have nothing in Christ, we possess everything. He is Enough. When that gets into the depths of our hearts, the world notices. People follow him and join a church, not because of a cool communicator or a hip worship leader or amazing children's ministry or relevant teaching, but because a church offers him something that the world can't. Peace, joy, sincere love, even in, especially in suffering. The most attractive thing we have to offer a lost and dying world isn't happy and fun music with relevant teaching. It's an all-sufficient Savior who has overcome the brokenness of this world. And so our song we sing to our soul every day is this. Come rejoice now, O my soul, for his love is my reward. Fear is gone. Hope is sure. Christ is mine forevermore. Friends, there is joy in that truth, that our great reward is not what we get here, that our reward is coming. The greatest joy and satisfaction in our life is found in his love to us. And we begin to live that way, knowing that he has defeated our greatest enemy, death, knowing that our hope is sure, that our fear is now gone. We live a life of divine and eternal significance because our creator sees us and recognizes us. When we begin to see that, joy seeps into our souls and cannot be taken away. May our lives shout that message in our difficulties, in our holiness, in our suffering, that the world would look at our lives and see one thing. Jesus is enough. That though we may have nothing, that we possess everything. So as we turn our hearts now to where we see that life won, of course, it's just like God and the way that he works, that our victory was won on a crucifix. Our hope was won on a cross. Your life was purchased through the death of his son. And so we turn now to remember that hope that we have in Jesus. That this is a meal for Christ's family to come around Christ's table to remember Christ's sacrifice. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I'm so glad that you're here. I hope you feel like there's a place where you're welcome, a place where you can explore faith, to try to figure out what it is uh, that we believe, questions about what we believe or who Jesus is, 
Listen, if you have questions about that, I would love to talk to you. Come grab me after the service. We get lunch or coffee sometime this week to talk through that. But I hope you feel like this is a church where you're welcome and you can explore faith. Right? Skeptics are welcome here. We love those conversations. God hasn't called us to just bury our head in the sand. We can press into, if God actually exists, we can press into that. But here this morning, instead of coming and taking communion, I hope that you would take Christ instead. That this joy, this peace, and this hope could be yours today if you turn and trust and follow him. If you have questions about what that means, again, please come grab me afterwards. But if you're here and you are a baptized believer, this table is open to you. As we come now to remember and to celebrate the place where our joy was purchased. 2,000 years ago, Jesus was with 12 of his closest friends eating dinner. He broke bread, passed it around, said, this is my body broken for you. Take this and eat in remembrance of me. Likewise, he took the cup, passed it, and said, this is my blood shed for you in the new covenant. Take this and drink in remembrance of me. And so we come now to remember, to proclaim his death until the Lord comes again, to celebrate the joy that we have in our sovereign Savior. So don't feel rushed. Continue to prepare your hearts. Come to the table this morning knowing that your joy is fixed. It's untouchable as we come to remember what God did to see that joy complete and to give it to us. And so whenever the communion servers are in place and you're ready, then you can come.